Well, I hope you've had a great weekend so far, and I hope this is a great uh, start to your week. Um, we're in week two of our series called Asking for a Friend. If you missed last week, I'd highly encourage you to go back and uh, either watch the Facebook or listen to the podcast. Uh, the question that we asked last week was, how can we trust the Bible to be true? And we talked about some different evidences that were there, and so would highly encourage you to go back and, and take a listen to that. But the question we're asking this week is this one. Why do bad things happen to good people? Anybody ever asked that question? A few of you? Yeah, this is a tough question. In fact, it's not just a tough question, it's the tough question. It's the tough question for philosophers and theologians and, and probably even you. Why do bad things happen to good people? And do we even have an answer for a question like that? And there are lots of reasons to, to ask that question, but I want to frame this question uh, through what C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Problem with Pain. And here's what he, he said. He said, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures aren't happy. Therefore, God either lacks goodness or power or both. That's the problem as clearly as can be stated. And I'll tell you that I've felt that myself uh, to some degree. Uh, I, I get it. Like for, for me personally, the, the pain and suffering that I've experienced in my life has been pretty minimal. I've had a pretty good life in, in that regard. But, and so I, so I get that my experience probably fails in comparison to a lot of the pain that many of you have suffered. But here's the thing about pain. And some of you are suffering uh, right now. You're dealing with it right now. And maybe you think your pain doesn't stack up compared to, to somebody else's. But here's what I would ask. Does, does it really need to? Does, does it really need to? Because your pain will always fill the vacuum of your soul left by the loss. Your pain is, is your problem. And it's always going to be significant to you. It's always going to be more significant to you than it is to somebody else. So I don't know that our pain has to stack up to somebody else's pain. I don't know that they're comparative things, right? Your pain is your pain. And and, and so the problem is, if you're asking this question, why do bad things happen to good people? And you're shaking your fist at God and yelling, hey, I deserve an, I deserve an answer. I deserve an explanation. I, I just want to know, I, I just want you to know that God's okay with that. If you've ever been angry with God about something that's going on in your life, about maybe some pain that's in your life, some suffering that you've endured, and you've been angry with God, I want you to know that's okay. God's okay with that. God's a big God. He's got big shoulders. He can handle it. But I also want you to know that you're not alone in that. And it doesn't make you a bad person for asking the question, why? Listen to Psalm uh, 10, what, what the psalmist writes. He says, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In other words, God, why do good things happen to bad people? And why are bad things happening to me? You're not alone if you've ever asked that question. Even the best men and women of the Bible have had their doubts. They've had their struggles. They've had their anger. And so I'm going to tell you up front, I don't know how to answer this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? I suppose if I gave a philosophical or theological answer and, and you're not suffering, that, that I could probably give you a pretty decent answer. But here's what I, I think, uh, or at least I think that we all need to understand, and it's this, is that God's greatest virtue is love. 
God's greatest virtue is love. He prioritizes love over everything else, over everything, including righteousness, truth, justice. God is love. Did you know that? Well, if you know that, then you also know that if God wants you to love you, if God wants you to love him, then he has to give you free will. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He could force you to love him, but but the moment that he forces you to love him, it, it ceases to be love because love is freely given. So, so God is love, and the sovereign God gave you freedom. And as soon as God gives humanity freedom, it opens up Pandora's box to all types of the evil that we see in this world. But here's the problem. If I ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And, and if you're not suffering, you can, you can hear an answer. But as soon as the question is personalized, it's a problem to answer. And so let's personalize the question. Instead of why do bad things happen to good people, let's ask this question. Why am I suffering? Why am I suffering? And, and some of you, you are. You ever notice that when you buy a new vehicle, you suddenly start seeing that same model of the vehicle that you just bought on the road everywhere? Like you always see it. As soon as I started like preparing for this message, I began seeing stories of, of deep suffering everywhere. And so I just want to try to answer this question. Why am I suffering? And here's my answer, honestly. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why you're suffering, but I do know this. I know the answers that we have given to this question over the years have turned more people atheists than any other issue in Christianity. Any other issue. Here's, here's just one example. A French poet named Baudelaire, he said this about God. He said, if there's a God, he's the devil. Because of all the suffering in the world. Now, I want to parse that apart for just a second because I don't believe Baudelaire, and I don't believe Baudelaire actually believed this. Why? Because if you really believed that God was the devil, you wouldn't call him one in public, would you? You kind of keep that to yourself. You wouldn't put that out there for everybody else to hear. Uh, it's kind of, it'd be kind of like if you went to prison and you, you search, sought out the, the biggest, meanest, toughest, nastiest looking guy in the prison, and you walked up to him and you're like, hey, you're a jerk. Like, I can predict your future. It's not going to end well. It's not going to go very well for you. You're not going to last long. Why would you ever say these kind of nasty things about God if you believe God existed? Baudelaire doesn't believe that God exists. That's why he's bold enough to speak out against God like that. But, but let me ask this question. Does the answer to human suffering, to, to the problem with pain, does the answer that God doesn't exist, that you know I'm an atheist, there is no God, that... Does that really help you in suffering? I mean, think about this. If I suffer and, and, and there is a God, I, I believe that God is somehow good. I don't understand everything that's happening. I don't really know what all is going on. I'm really angry and I'm really confused, but at least I know there's a God. That at least gives me the potential for something good to come out of this suffering, right? To, to something good to come from this pain. But suddenly when you say there is no God, then all of the natural disasters that aren't driven by human evil, all the genetic defects that lead to cancer and other kinds of diseases, all the interstates that, or the, the accidents that happen along the interstate, you know what the, saying there is no God means? It means that those, those disasters, those accidents, they're meaningless. And that your suffering is meaningless. And I'll tell you, I can't really think of a more cruel thing to say to someone who is in pain, to someone who is in suffering, then there is no God. And so I would just say to those of you who are suffering, maybe you're in this room or maybe you're online watching, 
and you're in a deep amount of pain, I would just say, please give God a chance. I I know it's painful. I I know you don't understand the why, but let me just say nobody really understands the why. But let me just also ask this. If If I could stand up here today and tell you why, and I could answer the why question for you, would it make a difference? Would it, would it bring your spouse back? Would it get you your job back? Would it, would it get your finances back? Would it bring your health back? The, the why question, even if I could answer it, it doesn't alleviate the pain that you experience. It doesn't stop the pain. It doesn't make the pain go away. In fact, if, if you were just to put this question on a chart, the question why, why am I suffering? The, the focus is always on the past. When, when you ask the question, why am I suffering, you're always focused on the past. And the emotion that the, it most often elicits is anger. I, I think a good principle that I try to use a, a lot in my own life is, is this, that if you ask a question repeatedly over and over and over and all the answers seem to be insufficient, then maybe the problem is not with the question or with the answer. Maybe the problem is with the question itself. I, I said that backwards. Maybe the problem is not with the answer. Maybe the problem is with the question. So instead of asking for better answers to the question, why, what if we asked a different question? What if I could offer you a question this morning that would somehow get you some traction and would actually help you in the midst of your suffering? Well, here's my attempt to do that, just that. Here's the question. How can I find meaning in my suffering? Maybe that's the question that we ought to ask. Not why, but but how. How can I find meaning in my suffering? This is the question that Viktor Frankl asked in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, Frankel was a psychotherapist, and he was also a Jew at the beginning of World War II. He spent time in Auschwitz and, and other concentration camps. And as a doctor, as a psychotherapist, he, he's observing what's going on in these camps. And I'm telling you, that's a hellish laboratory. But this experience offered him a, a, an unprecedented opportunity for him to study what works in suffering and what doesn't. What, what humans do to survive in their suffering and what humans do to die in their suffering. And here's the observation that he made that that I hope you can grab hold of if you're suffering, if you're in pain this morning. What Viktor Frankl observed is that every person who who survived Auschwitz and, and really every other concentration camp for that matter found meaning in their suffering. They found meaning in their suffering. It didn't make their suffering go away, but, but they found meaning. In the midst of a concentration camp, some people survived simply for the meaning of being reunited with their family. Some, some people simply survived for the meaning of, of helping up a bunkmate who was too weak to, to, to walk that day. So, some found meaning in getting out of the camp and being more resilient and more gritty uh, person after the war, and they did. Everyone who survived Auschwitz found meaning in their suffering. So how can I find meaning in my suffering? How can you find meaning in your suffering? I ran across a podcast a couple of weeks ago by a woman named Mary Morrison. And the topic of her podcast was called, What Highly Successful People Do When Bad Things Happen. It's an 11-minute listen. I'd encourage you to, to, to search for it. I found it on Spotify. You can, you can listen to it. And, and I, she had some great insights. And, and in particular, she said three things that I just thought were, were brilliant. And number one, she said this. She said, it, it is what it is. That's what highly successful people do. That's what they say when, when they find themselves in situations where they can't change it, they can't bring it back, they can't undo it. It just it, it is what it is. And here's the genius of it is what it is. She said, why don't you press pause on your panic for three days? Why don't you just 
Press pause on your panic for three days. If something bad happens, don't panic right away. You, you get pink slipped, don't, don't panic. Uh, just press pause on your panic for three days, and, and then after three days, you can panic. You, you're not going to have a job anymore. You're going to have all day to panic. You'll have plenty of time. Just press pause on your panic. You get served papers, don't panic. Just schedule your panic for 72 hours. And in those 72 hours, she said, what you'll, what you'll get is an opportunity to raise your curiosity. And to ask questions like, what are the potential goods that can come out of this bad situation? And the idea is that by the end of 72 hours, hopefully, you have a, a list of some good things that could come out of that situation. And you'll be ready to, to move to, to the second step, which was this, harvest the good. It is what it is, and harvest the good. Make plans. You can't bring all of the good out of a bad situation, but maybe you can bring one. Maybe you can bring one thing out of that bad situation. And so you harvest the good from a bad situation. And then number three was real simple. You discard the rest. You discard the rest. You get rid of it. I don't know if you have the same habit that I have. And she mentioned this in her podcast. But when, when I get hurt, when I'm in pain, there, there's kind of three steps that I think most everybody goes through. And it's rehearse, nurse, and curse. Rehearse, nurse, and curse. I, I just rehearse it in my mind. Somebody did something to me, and I just say, they, they did this to me, and they said that to me, and I should have done this, and I should have done that, and I'm going to do this, and I just rehearse that over and over in my mind. And, and some of you probably do that too. You play out the scenario. What, what you would say if there were no consequences, right? Maybe what you would do if there were no repercussions. You just rehearse it in your mind. And then you nurse it. Because sometimes, let's just be honest, it feels good to be mad. You like to keep that, that emotion around because it feels good to be angry about something. In fact, some of you know people like this, that they're not happy unless they're mad about something. That's just how they kind of operate in life. And so you just nurse it. And then number three, we curse. We start blaming other people. And let me just tell you, as long as you're rehearsing, nursing, and cursing, you can never harvest the good from a bad situation. You'll never be able to bring the good out of those situations. And so with that perspective, with the, the it is what it is, harvest the good, discard the rest, uh, Viktor Frankl's idea of, of uh, finding meaning in your suffering, with that perspective, I want us to look at a passage in John chapter 9 in the New Testament. Um, and it's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And, and with that perspective, reading this story, it kind of it changed my view of this story. In, in John chapter 9, this is toward the tail end of Jesus' life, and he's leaving the temple. He's been in the temple for days, and he's been arguing with all the religious leaders. And he has won every theological argument that they've had. It's not even been close. And I think the disciples, they, they have seen this. They've watched this for, for days. They've watched Jesus just put these Pharisees in their place, and, and, and they've seen that. And I think they probably said to themselves, you know, I want to be like that. I want to do that. I want to put people in their place. And so as they're leaving the temple... In John chapter 9, verse 2, they, they walk by a man who's been blind. And he's been blind since birth. And he's like 40 years old now. And, and they walk by him, and it says in verse 2, it says, the, the disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Who sinned, this man or his parents? Now let me just push pause there for a moment and ask, what kind of moron asked that kind of question? I mean, really? Like, like that, that's a dumb question, isn't it? Who sinned? This guy's born blind. So, so what did he do that was wrong before he was born? Like that's a, but, but before we're too harsh on the disciples, we should remember this, that they lived in a culture where, where people assumed that if something was wrong with you, that God was punishing you. 
that if you were sick, then, then you had some sin in your life. Sin, sick equaled sin. And honestly, don't tell me that you haven't also thought that at some point in your own life. You know, you ask, why is this happening to me? I, I must have done something wrong, right? I must have done something bad to cause this to happen to me. It's not just an old cultural value. And the disciples were saying, who sinned? This man or his parents? And it's just like, how could he sin before he was born? How, how did he sin in utero? But the rabbis, they had an explanation for that. They, they would take you back to the story of Jacob and Esau. And they said, you know, Jacob pulled Esau's ankle while they were still in the, in the womb. And, and, and Jacob tried to kill him. And, and so they said he sinned in utero. It's a ridiculous statement. And Jesus treats it as such. Listen to what he says in verse 3. He says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, if you're still asking the question why, this is a terrible statement that Jesus just made. Why was he blind? So God could be glorified in his life. Really? I mean, you're telling me that the God of the universe who, who put everything in order, put everything in its place, he, he, he keeps a guy blind for 40 years so that Jesus can walk by and heal him and everybody say, oh, look how great God is? Like, I mean, that's mean and cruel. But Jesus isn't answering the why question. He's answering the how question. The how question. How, how can good be brought out of this? And so Jesus, what did he do? He, he heals the man. He puts mud on his eyes and he sends him to a pool to, to, to wash. And, and all of a sudden he can see. And when he can see, everybody in town is now forced to make a decision about what they think about Jesus. If, if you chart these two questions together, why am I suffering? Well, that's about the past, right? It, it brings about anger. But this question, how can I find meaning that's about the future. And the, and the emotion that it generates is hope. How can I find meaning? It's about the future and it generates hope. If you can somehow find in your suffering, decide that I'm going I'm to find a hopeful path forward in this, then, that, that's when your suffering becomes meaningful. Viktor Frankl said, the moment you find meaning in your suffering, it ceases to be suffering because it becomes purposeful. The, meaning, the moment that you find meaning in your suffering he says it's no longer suffering because it becomes purposeful. And so here's the challenge for us, because it's hard to, it's hard to get to the how. And, and I would suggest that you'll never find the right how without the right who. Let me say that again. You'll never have the right how. How do I find meaning in my suffering? You'll never find the right how without the right who. When, when you can find your how, how to find meaning in suffering, suddenly your suffering can be just as much of a gift as it is a hurt. Now, understand this. It's never a gift to you, okay? It, it's not. Your suffering is never a gift to you. It's always a gift to the people around you. And you know this. Because the people that you've been most helpful to, it comes out of your own personal pain, right? And the people that have been most helpful to you, they have, they have spared you. They have saved you from the pain that they have experienced. I ran across a story about a woman in Arizona whose story is really about the who. And I would say this woman had suffered a great deal. Her name is Christina Ward. And in 2004, she lost her husband to a Vicodin addiction. She, walked, she came in home from work one day and she found her husband dead in the bed of, a, of an accidental overdose. Needless to say, she was shocked and, and that rocked her world as it would anybody. She went through sadness and depression just like you would, would be expected. She said in this interview that she always grew up believing in, in God, but she didn't really walk the walk. She says, like, like a lot of people, I, I, I believe that God existed. I knew about God, but I didn't know God. 
And so I was just, I was, I was just there. I, I, I didn't have a relationship with him. Then in 2007, she met a man named Derek, and they hit it right off, and he came from a faith background, and they started going to church together. In 2008, they got married, and during that time, they both really just developed and matured in their, in their faith. They, they became very active in, and involved in their church. They were attending the small group. They were, they were serving in various ministries together, and everything was just really going well for them. And then on April the 2nd of 2016, while Christina was working as a, at a hospital as a trauma ER nurse, they got a call from EMS that said they had a motorcycle, patient, uh, motorcycle trauma patient coming in. Because of where Christina worked at in the hospital, it was going to be her patient. A few minutes later, EMS called back and they said, scratch that, we actually had to, uh, to declare the, the patient dead at the scene. A few hours later, the charge nurse came and asked Christina to come back into a room with her where a police officer was there to tell her that the patient that would have been her patient was actually her husband, Derek. She said in those first few moments, she just thought, seriously, Lord, we're going to do this again? And she said, she just went into sort of a state of shock and she said, you ask why, but you're not really ever going to get an answer to why. And then she said, but it was different this time. There, there, it was different this time from her first husband. She said there was an immediate peace uh, about her husband, Derek, that, that she knew where he was, that when he opened his eyes, he was standing in front of Jesus. And, and that just brought her to peace. And she said, of course, she misses him. But there's just this overwhelming sense of peace that she can't really even put into words. Just that it was a sense of calm and comfort that only the Holy Spirit can, can give. And then she continued to say this. She said, there's a plan for your life and things happen and it's up to you to decide what you're going to do with it. I could sit in a corner and I could wallow and feel sorry for myself, but it is what you do with it. And allowing it to help others, that's the good that has to come out of it. And then she finally said this. She said, that's how God shows his love to us. He shows it in those who are around us. He, he's there with you. She said, I knew that God was walking with me and would never leave me and that he was always there and would always be there. And I just want you to lean into that statement, that last statement she made for just a moment. That I knew God was there and He would always be there. The why is a mystery. But the how is in the who. And I think we all need to ask this question, who can help me in my suffering? If you're not suffering right now, you go ahead and you ask the why. You go ahead and do that. But if you're suffering right now, ask who. Who? Because the who will get you to the how. The oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, tells the story of how God used Job really for his own glory. And, and the book of Job, it, it opens up with a scene in heaven that Job really has no clue about. He doesn't know about this. But, but Satan goes to heaven and Satan kind of knocks on the door and God says, who's there? And, you know, come in, whatever. I don't know that that's how it actually happened. But, but Satan and, and God begin to have this conversation. And Satan says, you see that guy Job? down there, he only glorifies you because you've blessed him. You take away all of his stuff and he, he will curse you. And God says, no, he won't. Satan says, yes, he will. No, he won't. Yes, he will. No, he won't. And they, they get in this argument about it. And Job gets caught in the crossfire and God allows Satan to take everything from him. He takes his family. He takes his possessions. He takes his farm. He takes his position in the community. He even took his health. The only thing that Satan left for Job was his wife. And trust me, that wasn't a favor. Some of you thought that was funny. You're getting elbowed by your wife right now. This is the woman that comes up to, uh, to Job and says, 
hey, while, while he's suffering, says, hey, why don't you just curse God and die? And he said, oh, thanks, honey. I appreciate the encouragement, right? And for the next 35 chapters, Job's friends come to him. And they just accost him with questions. They just accuse him. Of, and, and they ask all the why questions. Why is God punishing you? What have you done? Why is God so mad at you? You must have some secret sin in your life. And Job says, no, I don't. I, I, I'm innocent. I haven't done anything wrong. I don't know why this is happening. But his friends, they're relentless at him. And they just keep agging and asking and asking and, and punching and punching. And finally, Job gets mad. Like all of us probably would. We, we get mad. And Job shakes his fist at God and he says, hey, come out, come out wherever you are. If we could just have a five-minute conversation, we could talk this out, we could sort this out, right? Well, be careful what you ask for. Because God said yes. And from chapters 38 to 40, God plows Job with questions. Listen to how this begins in chapter 38. It says, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. I, I think right there, that's ominous even in itself. And he said, who is that that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? I mean, that's harsh right away, isn't it? And he says, brace yourself like a man. I think that's the point. If I were Job, I'd probably wet myself. And it's like, brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. And God did question Job. He said, Job, are you able to put a single star in the sky because I flung galaxies with my fingertips? Job, can, can you understand uh, the wind? Are you able to control the wind? Can you, do you understand the depths of the earth? Can you uh, understand the value of the worth and the worth of the earth? Can you weigh it? Can you spin it? Can you hold it? Do you understand the animals and their secret layers? Do you understand any of that? And this goes on for three chapters. And the temptation is to think, come on, God, man, you're just, you're just kicking a guy while he's down, right? But if you have kids, you know why God shouted at Job. Because when you're in pain, that's all you can hear. And God needed him, and he needs you to hear the who. I would be foolish to even pretend that I understand the questions of the universe. And I won't pretend that I can explain to know why you are suffering. But I do know this. I know that the best thing that you can do is to, find, is, to, is to somehow find meaning in your suffering. To find meaning in your suffering. And if you can do that, and really I would say the only way that I know that you can do that is to find the who. And the right who will lead you to the right how. If you chart these questions, why is about the past and it, it leads to anger? How is about the future and it elicits hope? But who? Who can help me? That's about now. That's about the present. And it always leads to love. It always leads to love. I think Dostoevsky got it right when he said, I don't know the answer to the problems of evil in the world, but I do know love. There's some things that God does that honestly, I, I don't understand them. I look at them and they don't seem very loving to me. And I, and I just can't figure them out. But I can tell you what I have figured out. Is that God sent His one and only Son and he suffered in the midst of us. You cannot look at Jesus and say, say well, well, Jesus, you just don't understand what it's like to be betrayed by a friend. Yeah, he does. You can't look at Jesus and say, well, Jesus, you just can't understand how bad my body hurts right now. Yeah, he does. Jesus, you just don't know what it's like to be misunderstood by, by other people. Yeah, he does. Whatever you're going through, it's not an exact equivalent to Jesus. But in every category of suffering, Jesus suffered, and he suffered to the ultimate depths. And the power of that is this. If you want to know love, your who, 
needs to be Jesus Christ. Jesus shared in our suffering. He's in it with us. The most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, Jesus, right? So that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life, would have eternal life. Why? Because He suffered with us. More than that, though, Jesus didn't just suffer with us. Because of Jesus, our suffering has purpose. The Apostle Paul put it brilliantly in Romans chapter uh, uh, 5. He says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Because of Jesus, He suffers with us. And because of Jesus, our suffering has purpose. And maybe best of all, because of Jesus, our suffering won't last. In the last book of the Bible, uh, the book of Revelation, here's a promise that we find, and it's in Revelation 21. It says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Jesus suffered with us. He gives our suffering purpose, and because of Him, our, our suffering will not last. So here's my challenge to you this morning. To find the right who... So that you'll know the right how. Find the right who so you'll know the right how. I know some of you are, are suffering immensely right now. And, I, and I'm sorry for that. I really, really am sorry for that. But I know this. I know that the God of the universe loves you. And He sent His Son to die for you. And He's coming back to put an end to your suffering. The right who, Jesus, will lead you to the right how to find meaning in your suffering. The right who will lead you to the right how. Normally, right now, I would pray and our worship team would come up and lead us through our invitation song. I would pray so that they could come up. And I want to do something a little bit different this morning as we, as we wrap up our time. I'm going to ask that we all go ahead and stand up. And, and our worship team, you guys come on up so that you get ready to lead us through our, our invitation song, through our closing song. But I want us to stand up and, and together read aloud a closing prayer. Instead of me praying for all of us, I want us to pray to read this prayer together. And I'm going to ask you to read this aloud with me, but this is not your prayer to Jesus. This is Jesus' prayer over you. And it's this prayer. It comes straight from Scripture. But would, you, would you read this with me? Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Amen. Let's sing.